Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Before we get started today, a warning. This episode discusses domestic violence in a way that may be upsetting to some listeners. I can't recall how many times we were at a party and I, I had to leave and people just okayed that behavior. And, um, and I just think back like, oh man, like nobody, nobody's seen anything wrong with that. It was, oh, he's just drunk again. Oh, he's just acting like that again. Oh, he's just, you know, take a joke kind of thing. And it's like, oh, people are just so easily offended now. It's not even a big thing. Like it's just- That's Jacqueline Suchite Rivas. She's describing what things were like with her ex. He was jealous, he'd belittle her, and that eventually escalated to physical violence. Like, and he didn't used to hit me every day. Like, the abuse would happen, like, sometimes, like, just monthly. And so I never, like, I thought abuse looked like you come home and you're beat every day. Like, that's literally what I thought, just, like, on my understanding through movies and through media and stuff like that. Like, I never actually knew that that was, like, abuse. And then I started... Intimate partner violence, more commonly referred to as domestic abuse, isn't something that tends to dominate the news. And yet, every six days, a woman in Canada is killed by an intimate partner. So what does society consider domestic violence? And where's the line when bad behavior crosses into abuse? The Globe interviewed more than 100 survivors, policymakers, researchers, experts, and frontline workers to investigate intimate partner violence. There's just still so much conversation around what that looks like. And yet, because that person isn't, doesn't have a hand to your face, they're still abuse. They're still name-calling you. They're still doing these things. And there's still so many people out there being like, oh, yeah, he's always just an asshole. But then they forget about it. And yet they invite them to the party the next time, right? And I know that's just really systemically entrenched, and I know it's going to take years of us to dismantle these systems, um, but it's not going to happen unless we continue to, you know, awareness is the biggest key, but it's how we're building that awareness. Today on the show, we talk to Elizabeth Renzetti. She's a feature writer and columnist at The Globe and one of the reporters on this project. This is The Decibel. Liz, it's great to see you again. Thanks for being here. Hello, Manika. Thanks for having me. So we just heard from Jacqueline, who survived an abusive relationship. She talked about her ex-husband belittling her. What would you call that kind of behavior? A pattern of emotionally and psychologically manipulative behavior in a romantic relationship, and it can take different forms, we call it coercive control, coercive controlling behavior. And the thing about it is that it's both a pattern of different types of behavior, and it's a pattern that can escalate to different kinds of violence, to sort of more extreme psychological violence and also to physical violence. What other kinds of behavior might fall into this category of coercive control? It's a whole kind of suite of behaviors. So it can involve isolation from your family and your friends and your coworkers. It can involve 
financial control. So for example, is your partner trying to uh, tell you that you can have no bank cards or you can't have a credit card? It can be psychological harassment, which would involve belittlement. For example, it can involve your motions and your movements being tracked, let's say on your phone, or um, you being told that you can't go out somewhere. It can involve jealousy. It can involve somebody wanting to know your social media passwords so that they can control and kind of eavesdrop on your social media. Uh, so it's all of these different things, and it is behavior that continues in a pattern. Do we have a sense of how common this behavior is? Yeah, not really, unfortunately, because uh, probably pretty common. And the reason I say that is this. In 2020, there were more than 100,000 incidents of intimate partner violence reported to the police in Canada. 80% of those were reported by women. And we know that that is actually a vast underestimate because as many as 8 in 10 women don't report their violence to the police. And also because people don't recognize coercive controlling behavior in this country necessarily as violence. And because it's not in the criminal code, it's not considered criminal behavior. So you probably wouldn't even report it to the police. And so those numbers that just just to separate this out, so the numbers that you said, they're the 100,000, that's intimate partner violence. Coercive control often leads to intimate partner violence. And is that, I guess, the connection there that we really see? Yeah, exactly. It is a type of intimate partner violence. It's recognized in certain countries as a criminal, and it can lead to different types of violence that are considered criminal. So sexual coercion or physical violence. Yes. And that's the problem is that people, you know, it's not just that it's harmful in and of itself, but that it can lead to kind of more severe violence and violence that can even be lethal in the end. So for example, when we see, you know, women and girls being killed by violence in this country, which researchers call femicide, a very common factor common to all of those is a pattern of coercive control. And when we're talking about these numbers, of course, we know that a lot of racialized women, indigenous women may be much more vulnerable to intimate partner violence. What, what do we know in terms of numbers specifically for, for these groups of people? Well, we know that Indigenous women in particular are, you know, for a variety of uh, historical reasons and current reasons, are more vulnerable to various forms of violence in our society. And that's not something that has really ever been addressed properly. And, and if you look at um, women who are perhaps newcomers to the country, who are perhaps, you know, um, immigrants, they face a series of different kinds of challenges that might be particular to their situations. And it might have to do with language or legal status or things like that. So absolutely, women who are marginalized in, in various ways are um, at greater risk of various types of violence. Earlier, you mentioned that isolation is a big part of, of this abuse. And of course, during the pandemic, people have been a lot more isolated. Have COVID restrictions made this problem worse? Yeah, it's really interesting what's happened during and quite horrible what's happened during um, COVID. So the Assaulted Women's Helpline, which is um, based in Ontario, but takes calls from across the country, saw its calls in the first year of the pandemic double to almost 100,000 calls in a year, which is, uh, yeah. What's interesting about that is that for a long, for the beginning of the first lockdown, 
What you heard from people who ran shelters was that the calls were actually dropping off because people were at home with their abusers and they couldn't find a way to reach out safely and they couldn't find a way to even, you know, go to the shelter. The shelter might be closed or it might have, uh, you know, fewer beds because because of COVID protocols. And then as the restrictions eased and people were coming more um you know, be perhaps feeling more free to seek assistance. What people in shelters were seeing was an increase in the severity of violence. So more severe physical injuries, things like um, broken bones and, and things like that. You have kind of a multi-pronged problem going on, which is that you have a person who's maybe stuck at home with their abuser And perhaps the situation is being aggravated by being in close proximity. So it was a really, I think it's been a really pretty terrible two years for a lot of people. And we're probably not going to know what the actual long-term repercussions are of that for a while. Do we have specific numbers, I guess, on on how much of a greater risk there is? Uh, Not necessarily, or or not that I know. No, not really. Why doesn't Canada have, have better data here? Well, Canada is really bad, as researchers will tell you, at both data collection, data dissemination, and transparency of data for a variety of reasons. Um, The Globe a few years ago did a series called uh, Data Gap, and uh, Molly Hayes and I did a piece for that about um, femicides and why they're sort of poorly understood and poorly counted. As many researchers think as many as 20% of femicides are not actually counted as femicides. So I guess a little bit of a bigger picture thing here then. Why is it important to recognize coercive control as as a form of abuse? I think because we've normalized it so much. I was thinking about this when I was listening to and watching, uh, you know, Kanye West's behavior towards Kim Kardashian, his ex. Hmm. Um, And a lot of people think it's funny and ha ha. And, you know, this isn't funny. Threatening your ex, uh, trying to control your ex's behavior, threatening your ex's new partner, these are not kind of cute things. It's not a sign that you love somebody. It is a sign that you are trying to control their behavior to your ends. And it takes away their autonomy, diminishes their individuality, and it harms them uh, psychologically and emotionally. And We kind of have this idea in Western culture, I would say, of love that is obsessive and all-encompassing, and we've bought into that myth for a long time. And love can be, obviously, like a hugely beautiful, uh, you know, thing between people, but it is not love when one of the partners is trying to control the other partner's behavior in a way that is detrimental to their mental and physical health. Why haven't we been able to shake this idea of this obsessive behavior being romantic? It's it's like it's 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 seen as kind of this an extension of love, but really it can be quite dangerous. Yeah. And so we have this on one hand, this idea of obsessive romantic love, which is quite deeply ingrained in the culture. And on the other, we just live in a pretty misogynistic society in which women have been for the longest time seen as extensions of, you know, male property and male status. And uh, we have been told for the longest time that, you know, men are, it's kind of okay for them to control um, the behavior of their 
romantic partners in a variety of ways. Now, I'm not saying that all of the victims of uh, partner violence or coercive control are women. They're not. Men are also the victims, but women tend to be make up more of the victims and the violence that they experience is also more severe. I'm curious, Liz, why did you as a journalist, why did you decide to look into this issue? Well, I've been writing about it a long time. And uh, I think my first column on this subject in the Globe and Mail was in 1993, if you can imagine such a thing. 30 and before, years ago. 30, almost 30 years ago, hard to believe. Um, and I've been writing about it, you know, ever since, uh, off and on. And I also wrote about it in university and journalism school. I was the women's issues reporter. And um, I grew up in a house where there was this kind of abusive behavior going on, this kind of coercive controlling behavior. And there was no name for it, right? Nobody knew what to call it. I would say that even today, most people don't know what to call it or even that it is, you know, a harmful pattern of behavior. And if we don't name it and recognize it, then the harm foisted on the children of partnerships like this can be really immense. And that trauma can live on through generations, actually, and can be perpetrated from one generation um, to the next. And um, I was also really and have been kind of stunned and disappointed that we have not made more progress on this particular issue in the past, not just in the past 30 years, but, you know, it's been identified sort of since the mid-1970s when the first women across Canada built the first uh, women's shelters, which were intended to be stopgap measures. And as we know, they are not just stop, not stopgap, but they have grown, they're filled to capacity, and we don't seem in many ways to be uh, any better at kind of dealing with the problem at the stem, at the root. So what can we do about coercive control? I mean, physical abuse is a criminal offense. We know that. But telling someone not to see their friends or, or calling them names, that isn't an offense. So, so what can we do here? Well, there's a couple things. There's a couple kind of approaches. One is the approach that some people want. Um, for example, there's an NDP MP, Randall Garrison, who's introduced a private member's bill in Parliament to criminalize coercive control. Some countries and jurisdictions around the world have done that, like England and Wales, and put it in their criminal codes. I would say the other way of dealing with it is that we educate ourselves and recognize what it is and how we can help people um, who perhaps are in this situation. So since our story ran, we've had people approach us and say, I didn't even know this was coercive control. And other people saying, I thought there was something problematic in, you know, the relationship of my friend or my family member or whatever, but I didn't want to say anything because I wasn't sure. And now this is kind of let them know that this kind of behavior is not okay. And it can also lead to much worse behavior. Why do some people like this idea of, of criminalizing coercive control? 
I think because, well, remember earlier we were talking about what are the numbers? Like, who knows what are the numbers? Mm -hmm. But when you start, if you criminalize it, you can kind of quantify it in a way. You name it as something that is important and deserving of our uh, attention as a society. And it can catch certain behaviors before they become more serious. So if you're catching an abusive behavior at an earlier stage, that, that might be saving someone's life down the road then. Yeah, it is possible because in the there was a study in Australia done and um, of femicides in a particular year, and there were something like 118 or so femicides. And in every case but one, coercive controlling behavior had been identified as a factor early on. So let's say you saw this in your friend and you thought, okay, why is her partner not letting her have a bank card? Why is he telling her, she can't go shopping alone. Why can she suddenly not come out to lunch with me? And you might take her aside if you felt comfortable and talk to her about this. I would obviously not do it in a place where she was unsafe. And I would also have uh, read a little bit up on it, first of all. But um, you might at least then broach the topic. And, and who knows, maybe that person is eager to have an ear and to have somebody to talk to about it. So what's the case against criminalizing course of control then? It sounds like this, this might help a lot of situations. Well, the carceral system, the criminal justice system, not just in this country, but in many countries, is unjust in many ways, right? It disproportionately targets and punishes uh, Indigenous people, uh, racialized people. So what if you're catching too many people who are part of those groups. And the second thing is when you read studies of women who have been through the criminal justice system because of intimate partner violence, what you see in a lot of cases is that they feel re-victimized. They feel re-victimized by the system, by having to deal with police and courts that don't take their needs into consideration. We have to think very, very carefully about who is served when we criminalize certain behaviors. Okay, so if not criminalization for this, then how else might we try to to fix the problem of coercive control and, and intimate partner violence? It has to be a whole of society approach. Men have to be involved, um, as well as women. For too long, we've just regarded this as a woman's problem. Mm. And we've only sort of dealt with it after women have left the relationship, which, by the way, is the most dangerous time for a woman or a man in, a, in, a, uh, in an abusive relationship. We have to focus on prevention. And if we heard anything through the people we've talked to over the uh, course of this reporting this series, it's that um, prevention is so hugely underfunded, under-resourced, little and little understood. So prevention can be everything from teaching healthy relationships very early on. It should be part of curriculum across the country at every school. You teach very young kids about consent and you teach them about what a healthy relationship looks like. And then later on, you have supports for people who might be struggling and who might be struggling with behavior that they don't like in themselves and they, they're struggling with, but they don't know where to go for help. So for example, if you're a person who feels out of control with your anger and you don't know how to deal with it and your partner has said to you, I'm leaving you if you don't get help, there's not a lot of places you can go for help, unfortunately, right now. Um, and you're kind of 
stuck. We really have not paid nearly enough attention to the prevention piece. Why is the point where someone decides to leave a relationship like this, why is that the most dangerous time? I think because the person who is the abuser suddenly realizes it's kind of all or nothing, right? Like they are now, perhaps they see this as their life falling apart or they have nothing left to lose. And women's shelters will tell a person who is at that point that they should make um, a safety plan. And I should say there's all kinds of resources for safety plans on the web. And anybody who is thinking about doing that should do it carefully. Um, you know, absolutely leave when you're when it's time for you to leave and make a safety plan first. For someone who is experiencing this, though, Liz, what other resources are there out there to, to help them? Yeah, there's things like the Assaulted Women's Helpline. There's um, Shelter Safe, which, you know, has a list of sort of uh, shelter uh, spaces in, in Canada. But I would say also just educating yourself about, like, what is happening to me? Is this normal or is this potentially dangerous pattern. And I think we sometimes internalize things, right? We have a little critic inside who says, oh, you deserve this kind of behavior. You deserve to be belittled or you you deserve to be treated this way. You're too dumb to handle the credit cards or the debit cards or whatever. And I would say question that voice that you have been told all along by society that you're not deserving of a loving, healthy relationship because you are. And the uh, resources are out there to understand and to recognize what you're going through. And you're not alone. So many other people are going through this as well. Liz, thank you for your reporting here. And and thank you for speaking with us today. I'm very happy to. Thanks for having me, Manika. And I should say at this point that um, the series on intimate partner violence that we're embarking on now, and the first piece was on coercive control, Molly Hayes, Tavia Grant, and I are writing together, two absolutely wonderful colleagues with the assistance of lots of good editors. If you think you or someone you know may be suffering from intimate partner violence and needs support, you can get more resources online at sheltersafe.ca slash get help. You can also go to canadianwomen.org slash support services. If there's immediate danger, call 911 or your local emergency services. Links to these organizations are also online in today's show notes. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Rose Danen. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. Michal Stein helped produce this episode. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.